welcome to mini episode 202 of Real Life Ghost Stories. And I have two spooky stories for you today. And the last story comes from September the 8th, 2022. And story number one comes from Michaela. The first story I'd like to share takes place when I was around three or four years old. It was only my mom and me at home this day. I remember going into my brother's room and, as cliche as this sounds, began to play with the jack in the box. I was facing the wall, trying out all sorts of variations of spinning the knob for the clown to pop out, when suddenly a toy hit the wall close to me. I remember just thinking, that was weird, but went right back to playing. Then another toy hit the wall, then another. I turned around and suddenly all the toys on the floor were being thrown in my direction. I did the only logical thing there was to do. I put myself between the mattress and the box spring of my brother's bed so the toys wouldn't hurt me while also screaming. I remember mom taking me out from the bed and asking why I got under the mattress and that's where the memory ends. About a year ago my mom and I were talking about that old house. She told me one of the scariest things that ever happened with me was when she heard me screaming bloody murder, ran to my brother's room where I seemed to be only to find the door locked. She had to burst the door open. She found me between the mattress and the box spring. She was terrified that I was stuck and suffocating. She never understood why I sandwiched myself. I was astounded to hear that she remembered that day too. I told her my side of the story. She believed it because we all believed that house was terribly haunted. What is it with poltergeists and toys? We've had so many stories where toys have been like arranged in a circle or somebody's left the room and come back in and all the toys have been flung around everywhere. Is it like a childish energy or is it because poltergeists inherently know that messing with toys is going to be freaky? But this seems very violent, like it seems like a violent assault, you know what I mean? So like all of these toys being flung And then you're like trying to get yourself between the mattress and the box spring in order to protect yourself. And then your mom comes to the door. The door is locked and she can't get in. That is very, very violent behavior. I'd love to know your parents' experiences of the house. Because like you said at the end of the story, like your mum experienced the house as being terribly haunted. So she immediately believed that you'd been locked in the room and all of the toys are being flung around. So she didn't question it as like, oh, maybe this happened or maybe that happened. She immediately was like, oh my God, that happened because that house was terribly haunted. I'd love to know what other things happen in the house. And also, just don't play with Jack in the Boxes. They're always going to be haunted. They're just, they're just creepy. They're just creepy little toys. Whoever thought that was a good idea, by the way. And story number two comes from Dan. There are over 34,000 graves in Rose Hill Cemetery, the largest cemetery in the city of Chicago. Those interred at the sprawling Northside Burial Ground include captains of industry, Civil War soldiers, 15 Chicago mayors, 16 US congressmen, half a dozen 19th century baseball figures and legendary sportscaster Jack Brickhouse. Louise is somewhere in there too, my mom told me around the time I moved back to Chicago in 2015. Louise was not quite a relative, but much more than just a family friend. My mom, my sister and I first met her in January 1980, shortly after we'd moved from Los Angeles to join my then stepfather in Chicago. Louise was a friend of his, and almost as soon as we finished hauling the last of our stuff into our new apartment on Lakeshore Drive, 
she invited us to lunch at her place in the building next door. Despite knowing almost nothing about her in advance, I had a weird premonition on our way up to her apartment that she was going to play a very important role in my life. A premonition which turned out to be right on the money. A tiny, worldly, hilarious, ribald widow in her early 70s. Louise was warm and welcoming to us from the moment we met. She and my mom hit it off immediately and soon formed a deep bond that would last for over a decade. Louise and I clicked as well, once we realised that the other was deeply interested in art, architecture and especially archaeology. The shelves of Louise's living room, whose floor-to-ceiling windows offered a gorgeous panoramic view of Lake Michigan, were filled with books on these subjects, as well as a wide array of ancient artefacts from around the globe. I was soon going over to her place on a regular basis by myself, and we'd spent hours discussing everything from Bauhaus architecture and surrealist art to Greek and Roman myths and the unification of Upper and Lower Egypt to her extensive and eventful travels in pre-World War II Europe. Despite the fact that I was only 13 at the time, Louise spoke to me like I was a learned adult, as opposed to an adolescent whose enthusiasm for these topics far outstripped his actual knowledge. When I graduated from the 8th grade that spring, Louise's gift to me was a copy of Emanuel Veleskovsky's Oedipus and Akhenaten. I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that not too many other 8th graders received the same graduation gift that year. The intellectual confidence that our friendship gave me turned out to be especially significant, as my abusive stepfather would spend the next two years doing everything he could to eradicate any semblance of self-esteem that I might possess. When my mom, who certainly had her own issues with him, finally got fed up and moved us out, all the friends we had made through my stepfather immediately abandoned us. All of them, except for Louise, that is. She sided firmly with the three of us and did whatever she could to be helpful and supportive as my mom gutsily rebuilt her own life and ours. As much as I appreciated Louise's love and encouragement, I confess that I found her presence increasingly difficult to take as I grew older. Louise would think nothing of enlivening a dinner conversation by, say, bringing up an artist that she knew in 1930s France who would mix paints with his own shit to achieve a particularly impressive shade of brown and she could always be counted on to kick it up several notches whenever we were out in public. She would flirt madly with any man we encountered, and maybe even misappropriate a wine glass, a piece of cutlery or some other grabbable item when nobody was looking. I was desperately craving some kind of order in my life, and Louise represented chaos to me. Charming and massively entertaining chaos, of course, but chaos nonetheless. I can still vividly recall spotting her advancing towards me through a crowded reception for one of my high school plays. I felt genuinely happy to see her, but I also silently prayed that this pint-sized dynamo with the flashing eyes and crimson lipstick would not do anything to embarrass me in front of my friends. I didn't see much of Louise while I was in college, but thankfully we managed to reconnect during the few years I spent in Chicago between my graduation and her passing. Never exactly a robust physical specimen to begin with, she was now exceptionally frail, but her personality and sense of humour remained as nuclear-powered as ever, slightly more grown-up and considerably less uptight than I had been during my high school days. I could now just relax and enjoy our time together, regardless of her craziness. When she died in 1992, after struggling with a variety of illnesses, she left me her lime-green couch 
a heavy stack of archaeology books and an antique brass nutcracker in the form of a shapely pair of female legs, which was really about the most Louise item imaginable. A lovely memorial gathering was held at Louise's apartment where I had spent so many wonderful afternoons listening to her incredible stories. I have no memory of there being a funeral, however, and I had no idea of what happened to her remains until my mom mentioned her in conjunction with Rose Hill. Now that I was back in Chicago and living only a 20-minute walk from the cemetery, I thought I might try to find her grave and pay my respects. Unfortunately, my mom was pretty sure that Louise's ashes resided somewhere in Rose Hill's gigantic two-story mausoleum, and most likely in a section devoted to the maternal side of her family, whose name we'd both completely forgotten after all these years. And whenever I went for meditative head-clearing strolls through the cemetery, the mausoleum's doors always seemed to be locked. My move back to Chicago after 23 years in Southern California was a positive one on many levels. I reconnected with old friends, made a few new ones, enjoyed some quality time with my mom, finally banishing some lingering ghosts from my difficult adolescence, and somehow even managed to show up in time to witness the Cubs win the first World Series in over a century. But on a professional level, it was a total, deeply dispiriting bust. One promising work opportunity after another either slipped through my fingers or blew up in my face. The countless job applications I sent out resulted in only a small handful of interviews and none of the book proposals I was writing seemed to be finding any traction. So in the fall of 2017, when a book agent I knew reached out about maybe helping a fairly well-known local musician write his memoirs, I said yes. Even though I knew it would be a real long shot to land a deal for this book. After a brief preliminary meeting at a downtown recording studio, said musician invited for me to come down that weekend to his house in Blue Island, a small city just south of Chicago, for a lengthier discussion of the project. Unfortunately, I didn't own a car, and since riding public transportation all the way down to Blue Island from the north side would take hours, and might not be the safest course of action, I decided to rent some wheels for the weekend. But as the car rental outlet nearest me had recently jacked up their weekend rates, I had to turn to their considerably cheaper branch near the northwest corner of Rose Hill Cemetery. When I returned to the car two days later, the employees at the rental place offered me a lift home, but I declined. The early October morning was a spectacularly beautiful one, and I didn't have any pressing deadlines, so I thought I'd treat myself to a leisurely walk home through Rose Hill. Unlike Chicago's more famous Graceland Cemetery, which is built on a perfectly rectangular lot. Rose Hill warps outward along the western part of its southern border, and none of the cemetery's many paved roads and paths are even remotely straight. These factors, combined with the sheer vastness of the place, make it easy to lose your bearings, even if you've already been there many times. On this particular morning, I entered the western end of Rose Hill via the Bryn Mawr Avenue gate, something I'd never done before. I took a left at the first fork in the pathway I came to, a right at the next one and so on, slowly winding my way more or less in the direction of Ravenswood Avenue entrance on the east side of the cemetery. Though this part of Rose Hill was pretty unfamiliar to me, I figured I'd eventually spy some recognisable landmarks that would help guide me to the other end. I had originally intended to walk straight home, but since the day was starting to get fairly warm and since my wife was texting me with questions about some upcoming travel plans, I decided to find a shady place where I could stop and rest for a few minutes. 
I noticed a small Egyptian revival style mausoleum coming up on my left. And after all these years, I'm still a sucker for an ancient Egyptian design motif. So I walked over and sat down on its cool front steps. I immediately felt very relaxed and happy sitting there. So I decided to hang out for a while and savour the moment. Letting my eyes wander dreamily over the tranquil landscape of gravestones, tombs, obelisks and colourful trees. To keep myself company on the walk, I'd been listening to a Spotify playlist I'd compiled of over 2,000 tracks of 1960s British psychedelia, one of my favourite musical genres. The combination of jaunty melodies, fanciful lyrics and pastoral introspection meshed perfectly with both the warm glow of the autumn day and the melancholy atmosphere of the cemetery. Even more perfectly than I could have expected, in fact. For while I was relaxing there on the steps of the mausoleum, the song Egyptian Tomb by the band Mighty Baby suddenly came up on shuffle, as if to make sure I was aware of where I was sitting. It was an odd and eerie coincidence, to say the least. Thinking it might be some sort of sign, I looked up at the name carved into the front of the mausoleum. Ferdinand Siegel and decided to check Google for any interesting information I might be able to find out about my present host. There wasn't much info out there, however Mr. Siegel appeared to have been a German-born real estate investor who had died in 1928 at the age of 79, presumably after having done well enough in his adopted country to build an impressive monument to himself. But compared to the fascinating stories of some of Rose Hill's other residents, the basic facts of Mr. Siegel's life didn't seem to warrant any further research. So feeling refreshed and ready to head home, I put my phone back into my jacket pocket and got up to go. After I'd walked about 10 feet back towards the road, it suddenly occurred to me that I hadn't actually looked into the mausoleum. Tombs of this size and era typically include a gorgeous stained glass rear window. I silently scolded myself for nearly passing up the opportunity to check out some beautiful 1920s glasswork. I headed back to the seagull tomb, walked up its front steps and peered through the bars of its oxidised iron doors. Sure enough, I could see a beautiful stained glass window set into the far wall, depicting what I took to be the Nile flowing languidly past a palm-dotted landscape, as if seen through a pair of ancient Egyptian papyrus columns. I took a photo of the window and then tried to make out the nameplates on the wall behind it. The third one down read... Louise E. Mora, 1908-1992. It was Louise. Our Louise. I stood there in shock for several minutes, first weeping, then laughing, somehow in this 350-acre repository of over 34,000 remains I had found her. Or maybe she had found me. Cynics might say it was all just a lucky series of coincidences that had led me to Louise's grave, and perhaps it was. But if I hadn't decided to take a chance on this book project, which unfortunately never panned out, hadn't needed to rent a car to visit the musician, hadn't been forced to find a cheaper rental outlet than the one I usually used, hadn't refused the outlet's offer of a ride home, hadn't taken several semi-arbitrary turns along a series of cemetery pathways I was only vaguely familiar with, hadn't needed to answer my wife's texts, hadn't suddenly decided to rest in the shade of that Egyptian-style tomb and hadn't thought to walk back and check out the stained glass before I left. Well, that's rather a lot of coincidences, isn't it? And really, what are the odds of Egyptian tomb coming up on shuffle out of over 2,000 songs shortly after I'd sat down? 
I was born in a world that can easily bring you down, goes the first line of Egyptian tomb. But for all the soul-crushing horror, cruelty and disappointment of this world, I can hereby attest that there's still something magic left in the universe. Louise proved it to me on that warm October morning from her resting place along the banks of a stained glass Nile. Oh, what a beautiful story. And Dan, I'm not going to lie, like I really hope that you got that book deal that you so definitely deserve because that was beautifully, beautifully written and just incredibly engaging. And Louise sounds like a wonderful woman. And it's funny how when you go through different phases of life, so when you're younger, people like that who are out there, who are controversial, who are wild and carefree, they're so exciting. But when you get into your teenage years, you desperately want all the adults in your life to just be normal and non-embarrassing and sort of blend into the background. So you kind of lose, you lose that same closeness with them even though they haven't changed as a person, but you're changing as a person and you don't want anything to bring attention to you that might that might make you stand out from other people. And I'm really glad that you got to reconnect with her in, in her older days and in your older days as well. Uh, it sounds like it was really beneficial to both of you. And I do, like, I, I think it's really weird. In a graveyard where there's 34,000 remains of people and you happen to end up sitting on that little mausoleum and that song happens to play about an Egyptian tomb and then you happen to go back and look in the window and there it is, it's her. It's her, that's where her remains are. I feel like that's her way of being like, you can find me, I'm going to make sure that you find me because it's important to you and it's important to me. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Thank you to Michaela and Dan for sending in your stories. Remember, the last story came from September the 8th, 2022. If you would like to send in your story, you can do so by emailing it to reallifeghoststoriespodcast at gmail.com. You can also check out the website reallifeghoststoriespodcast.com. If you are desperate for extra content, you can subscribe to Patreon, patreon.com forward slash stories, where for $5 a month or $2 a month, you get access to heaps of extra content, as well as every single main and mini episode completely ad-free. And on that note, I shall see you next time.